Hello friends and welcome back to It's All Relative, the show that explores life's issues through a generational lens, helping us find our place in these crazy times and understand how we're changing as consumers, workers and assistants. Now each week I tackle a question that I want answered, interviewing experts and practitioners along the way to find the answer. Today we are discussing the contemporary challenges of working motherhood by looking back at its history. Mothers have always worked of course, but today we are seeking to understand the evolution and the professionalisation of working motherhood in the hope that we can better understand where we are today. With me to discuss this issue is my friend and historian extraordinaire Helen McCarthy, Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at the University of Cambridge and author of numerous books including Double Lives, A History of Working Motherhood, which has won a host of awards and really is the go-to book on this subject. Helen, welcome to It's All Relative. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We go back a long way, all the way back to our PhD years and long before we were both mothers. I wonder if you could begin by helping our listeners understand that history of working motherhood, because there's nothing new in mothers working, right? No, you're absolutely right. And actually, when I wrote my book, I had to be really careful in terms of defining work. Because, of course, all mothers work, as you say. The distinction that needs to be made is between paid work and unpaid work. All mothers are doing forms of unpaid work all the time. But my book is about the mothers who were trying to juggle that with various forms of paid employment, really from the late 19th century up to the present day. And it's sort of worth saying that most mothers on the whole were not in the 1880s or 1890s doing full-time paid employment continuously alongside looking after children but there were quite a number of them who were for various reasons often under quite serious economic pressure perhaps their husbands had abandoned them they were widowed perhaps their husbands had suffered disabilities and weren't able to support their families so a lot of women doing a lot of paid work on top of all of the unpaid work that they were doing as mothers fast forward to the 60s the 70s and maybe into the 80s what happened with growing professionalization growing openness for working mothers to be working after they had children? I think the period after the Second World War, the second half of the 20th century, is the real era of change. And it's really fascinating because really from the early 50s onwards, we see a rise and rise and rise in employment rates for women. And much of that is being driven by higher employment rates for married women and mothers. And that happens gradually in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, we tend to think of the 50s as the decade of the housewife, when women are sort of banished back to the home, having temporarily tasted liberation during the Second World War working in factories. It's not entirely inaccurate, but it's not the full picture. We actually see really from the early 50s onwards is a growth in the number of married women who are going back into the labour force in their late 30s or early 40s once their kids are at school, often on a part-time basis. And a lot of this is being driven by the economy. There's a real demand for married women's labour and employers have to be more flexible, more accommodating of women who only want to work part-time or who can only work part-time or who can only work during term time when their kids are at school. The big change in the 50s and 60s is to do with those older mothers going back into the labour force with school-aged children. What then happens is in the 70s is you get even more growth and now you're beginning to get increasing numbers of mothers who are going back to work sooner after their children are born. So mothers with children under school age. And this is also the decade when women actually gain a statutory right to return to their jobs after having kids. And that's in 1975 with Employment Protection Act. 
To what extent was that propelled by feminism and the culture of feminism in the 70s or just economic necessity? It's a bit of both, I would say. There's a real shift in the structure of the economy and and the economic conditions for women's work in the 1970s. We see the return of mass male unemployment, particularly in manufacturing industry. This is an era when deindustrialization really begins to set in in a very big way. And that does mean that more households are under economic pressure. Actually, the sort of economic pressure that some of those working mothers in the Victorian period were under. We see that in the 1970s and an increasing need for two incomes. But This is also the decade of women's liberation and the decade of feminism and a decade in which equal opportunities in the workplace are becoming embraced or enshrined, if you like, as an official ideology of the state through the Equal Pay Act, which is passed in 1970, through the Sex Discrimination Act passed in 1975, which outlaws discrimination on the basis of sex or marriage in the workplace, as well as in training and education. And then, as I just mentioned, the Employment Protection Act, which gives women right to return to their jobs and statutory maternity pay. When does the idea of women being able to have a career come into play? Again, quite an old concept. If you jump back to the 19th century, to the Victorian feminist movement. They were very keen on women having careers, but they assumed that most women would have to choose between marriage and family and having a career. This idea that the kind of model of women's professional identity was one rooted in serving the public and making a contribution or following a vocation, sometimes understood in religious terms, God has given me this work to do. So that concept is there in the late 19th century, but the idea of the kind of career woman really becomes much more prominent in the post war period. And again, there's a sort of question mark about how far is it compatible with having a family. And a lot of professional women's organisations in the 1960s say, yes, it is. But it might be the kind of career that a woman has to pick up again after she's had kids. And I think it's not really until the 80s and 90s that that idea that women should be able to compete on an equal basis with men and work continuously and follow a continuous career rather than having to kind of chop and change becomes more normative. Let's move to the 1980s, the era of power suits and the first female prime minister was pivotal in that idolation of the career woman. How did the conversation change? Sure. I mean, the 1980s is a mixed decade for women because the highest public office in the land is occupied by a woman throughout the decade. Margaret Thatcher herself clearly is an incredibly successful career woman and a real role model in terms of power and ambition and achievement. Her conservative governments don't do very much to support women's workplace advancement across the decade. They don't prioritise investment in childcare or strengthening women's maternity rights. There is quite an important amendment to the Equal Pay Act in 1983, which strengthens that legislation. But that's done in response to the European Commission that's saying, actually, Britain, your equal pay legislation doesn't meet our standards. So that's reactive. It's not something that the Thatcher government is really pushing forward. But having said that, there are these longer term developments and trajectories, which means you do see increasing numbers of women moving into professional roles, managerial roles. And that's a reflection of their greater participation in higher education and increasing numbers of women who actually have the qualifications to go into those sorts of jobs. And that really hits in the 1990s, I'd say. It's growing in the 80s. It really hits in the 1990s. 
you have a fascinating stat in your book that you said in one study from the 1980s estimated that 15 to 20% of mothers regularly took their children to work with them. Now, I remember having to go to my mother's work after school because we didn't have childcare and she had to, <laughs> had to sit at a desk and draw. But I wonder, that feels like a familiar experience for my generation, but probably not one that certainly my kids' generation are going to experience. I wonder if you could outline the ways in which women managed the juggle back then in ways that probably they wouldn't do today. That's so interesting. And I was very struck by all of the evidence of women taking jobs that are very local so that they can just pop out. They don't have to get a bus. They don't have to pay any of their wages on a bus fare. So actually waged work in the home long before the pandemic, long before the era of the internet and working from home. Actually, women were doing forms of waged labour in the home right through the 20th century. It was a kind of childcare solution. We know from working from home during the pandemic, it's not a childcare solution, but there were some forms of work that mothers who needed to earn or wanted to earn were able to do that juggle by doing it inside their own homes. I was just thinking about my grandmother who was a seamstress and that work she did from home and she made coats and dresses and things for all her clients and it was something that her daughters would just watch her do. So she would work in front of them as she would be looking after her children but it would be work that she could do whilst being a mother and I just wonder actually in the digital age that's not possible because you can't have a Zoom call and look after your children as we experienced during the pandemic. The kind of homework that women were doing in the post-war period was a massive part of the late Victorian consumer industries. Women doing exactly that kind of, often like tailoresses, doing needlework at home. It was absolutely sort of fundamentals to those industries. It wasn't quite so common by the 50s and 60s, although a lot of women were actually still doing it. And then it sort of resurged in the 1970s. And this is a really interesting part of the history because a lot of South Asian migrant women who came to Britain in the 60s and 70s did forms of homework. And this is partly because the garment industry was something where a lot of South Asian entrepreneurs set themselves up and used women within their own communities as workers. And it's partly because working at home suited women who didn't want to face racism in the workplace or who didn't have the language skills to go out and get a job in a factory. So homeworking actually becomes a really important part of the South Asian migrant woman's story in the late 20th century. I wonder if we could move into the 1990s then, because it feels like such a pivotal decade for women's work for so many different reasons. To what extent do you think the shake-up and the expansion of university education changed the numbers, the conversation, the pathways around working women? You're absolutely right. To identify changes in higher education as a major, major driver of changes in women's employment. In the 1950s, it was actually pretty unusual for middle-class women to go to university. I remember interviewing a woman for my previous book on women diplomats and she did eventually become a diplomat but she originally joined the foreign office at a lower level a sort of clerical level and ended up marrying a diplomat and she'd gone to a quite a sort of middle class school in the 1950s she was very middle class but she said it'd been very strange for someone like me to have gone to university rather than simply leaving school getting a job maybe getting a qualification from a secretarial college or perhaps going to teach a training college it's a big big change in the late 20th century when it becomes totally normal for middle-class girls to go to university. If you're a middle-class girl, it's a bit odd if you don't. I went to an all-girls grammar school in the 1990s, left in 1998, and out of 100 girls in my year, only one of them didn't go to university. We all sort of thought she was a bit odd for not wanting to go. It was sort of totally assumed that we would all be going to university. Same experience. It was a state inner-city London school, but it was almost assumed that we would go to university. There was a slight limitation on what our career paths would be. So the idea that you would be a teacher, 
and a nurse or maybe a pharmacist. There were certain professions that were definitely promoted and it was also a Church of England school so it was very much about service as well and that being quite a feminised notion of service. But definitely that idea of you go to university, that's the pathway into professional, middle class, stable life. The extent to which this does create a polarisation of women's employment in terms of having a growing minority of very well educated women who have professional qualifications and degrees moving into professional level roles and being socialised into career values and ambition and the majority of the cohort who go to university clustering in the same kinds of jobs that women have been doing throughout the 20th century. So lower paid jobs, jobs that are considered to be lower skilled in a lot of those sorts of occupations that are considered to be suitable for women. So a lot of caring, cleaning, retail. That's what's so fascinating is as you've seen the expansion and professionalisation of a certain cohort of women and their careers, you've seen the expansion of services helping and allowing those women to go to work. You see the reinvention of the servant economy really in the 90s and noughties. It is a reinvention because middle class women in the early 20th century, whether they worked for pay or not, assumed that they would have servants, assumed that they would not be doing the drudgery of scrubbing the floors or cleaning the toilet or looking after their children. So it is a reinvention, but it's a very interesting one because as you say, in the 1980s and 1990s, what's really driving that is the dual career couple. So the couple where both partners are pursuing full-time careers and they outsource that work to women. And increasingly in the 90s and 2000s, women who were not born in the UK, migrant women, often women of colour, often women who may have their own families in other parts of the world to whom they're sending back remittances. And the sociologist Arlie Hoxfield has talked about this in terms of global care chains, which I think is a sort of very interesting way of, of conceptualising it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. So the resurgence in the 80s and 90s of waged domestic labour, of middle class professional people paying other people, usually women, to do that work for them. It all makes me a bit angry because instead of the liberation of women in the professional class leading to greater domestication of men, it actually means the servitude of women of colour and women of lower economic status. I think that's right because where dual career couples can afford to, they don't share it between them, they outsource the work to others. But having said that, that's minority of households. What's more common is for the man to be working full-time and the woman, certainly after she's had kids, to be working part-time. It's the sort of one and a half household in the lockdown. There was a, a lot of research that showed that where dual earner couples were having to negotiate who's going to be doing the homeschooling, who's going to be supervising the children who might have to kind of step back a bit from work in order to keep the show on the road it's actually the woman because she's probably working shorter hours anyway because she's already fitting herself in around the male career and she's probably earning less you're bringing it all back to me helen This was the dynamic in my household. My husband's great, but I had a more flexible setup as an academic and also I earned less. And so (laughs) it was kind of more important to keep the breadwinner. Them's the breaks. Totally. (laughs) I wonder about the origins of that having it all mantra. I remember vividly that Nicola Horlicks, was it with her nine children, saying that it was possible to be a mother to all these kids and a city banker or whatever she was. Could you just talk a bit about that and the origins of it and maybe reaction to it? I seem to recall that the first person to coin the phrase was an American journalist, I think in the 1980s, who was referring actually not so much to mothers, but to wives. Can you have a husband and a career? Can you keep the two things going? But by the 1990s, that phrase 
just having it all is absolutely moored to the problem of the working mother or the kind of the challenge facing the working mother. But it's an interesting phrase because it both gestures towards an enhanced sense of entitlement amongst women who want to have it all. It also kind of hints at selfishness <laughs> to wanting it all. Can she have it all? Should she have it all? Is it reasonable to demand that you should have it all? It's sort of interesting how it's taken up by novelists in the 1990s and 2000s, a number of working mother novels that become almost a subgenre of chick lit at this time. I'm afraid that most of these heroines who are professional working mothers crash and burn. It's a pretty, the script seems to be, if you try to have it all... <laughs> Things will go wrong in your life. Your husband will leave you, will cheat on you. Your children will hate you. You'll have a meltdown at work. You'll be overlooked for promotion. To what extent also at play here is this idea of women delaying having kids till they get to a certain point in their career? Most women are still having children. I mean, it's still like 80% of women having children across the period, but they're having fewer children and they're having them later on in life. This trend is particularly pronounced amongst women with degrees and women with higher professional qualifications. By the 1990s, you've also got stories about egg freezing and IVF and those reproductive technologies that are often imaginatively framed by the tabloid media as technologies for careerist, ambitious women, which I think misses something that's really important, which is that most women don't want to wait until they're 45 to have kids. If you want to be successful and you're ambitious, you're forced to make those sorts of choices. And if you don't have a supportive partner, then you may be forced to take those choices. There's a whole structure around these decisions that women are maybe making around reproduction. And it's certainly a narrative that I remember growing up with. We had so many lectures about not getting pregnant when we were teenagers and nothing about our fertility cycle later in life and what happens to it. And when you think you're trying to create career women, actually the second part of that story is really important. But I also wonder whether we're talking about the having it all narrative or whether we're talking about men failing to step up in the domestic sphere and outsourcing a lot of that care and, and those domestic chores and the fact that women are delaying children. It just speaks volumes as to the way in which we created this generation of professional women but made no allowances for them in the workplace. It was such a rigid, straight-jacketed system that they had to slot into. And I remember my mum, I had quite a strange upbringing. It was my mum went out to work and my dad stayed at home, which in the 1980s was very unusual. My mother, I remember her telling me really up until the point of she got to a certain level of seniority and it was only then that she could almost admit that she had children publicly in the workplace. She had to almost be in denial of it. What would you say about the constraints of that system and the way in which women had to contort themselves and their lives and their care responsibilities into it? I think that's so poignant because once you have the Equal Pay Act, you have the Sex Discrimination Act, employers can no longer say we don't want women or we're not going to pay you the same amount as we're paying men. So those kind of structural barriers down at least in terms of formal barriers. But in terms of actual workplace culture and what allows you to move on and what allows you to succeed and progress, those norms around the standard male model of work persist, particularly in the professional workplace. Part-time working and flexible working does grow in the late 20th century. It does become more possible to work in a slightly more flexible way in the corporate workplace. But because these concessions are being made by employers for women, they become identified with secondary, what's sometimes called the mommy track, that if you go part-time, you're signalling to your employer that you're not serious 
You're not competing with the men. You're taking a step back because of your kids and because of your responsibilities in the home. That perception has been very damaging, not just for women's career mobility, but also for the possibilities for men to be more involved as fathers with their families. When shared parental leave was introduced and men could now take a portion of their partner's parental leave a few years ago. And the take-up was very low initially. And some men essentially said, I can't be the first guy in my office to take this. It's about norms and while flexible working or part-time working heavily associated with women, we're not going to see progress. Does a father feel as comfortable standing up halfway through a meeting at four o'clock and doing, I've got to go and do the school run? There's those parental responsibilities. But for those that don't have children, there's going to be elder care responsibilities. And my great fear is for millennial women is that we will have the pregnancy penalty. And then 10 years down the line, we'll get the elder care penalty because we'll be looking after our parents and possibly our in-laws for a number of years that will really impact our career. And I think just allowing men to demonstrate those caring responsibilities more explicitly in the workplace is critical. I want to talk about new labour because I feel like there was such hope. I certainly remember 1997 being fueled with hope around new labour and particularly what it was going to do for women. And in your book, you suggest that new labour fails to address the concerns of working mothers, despite those good intentions that they had. I wondered if you could just flesh out what was achieved in those years. I think new labour did mark a break from the years of Thatcher and Major in terms of commitment to gender equality. I think there was substance behind its claim, as Tessa Jowell famously said, we are the most feminist government in history. I think there was substance to those claims. New Labour creates a women's unit in the Cabinet Office to mainstream gender equality across all areas of policymaking. They launch a big consultation exercise in order to kind of listen to women. Women, tell us what you want from a Labour government. They did strengthen maternity rights. They lengthened maternity leave. They did invest a great deal in childcare through the National Childcare Strategy and built Sure Start centres, which were hugely beneficial for many parents and local communities. So there was a lot done. What's very interesting is where we are now, actually, on the childcare debate, because we've obviously had this big flagship policy announcement in the budget over the extension of free places to nine-month to two-year-olds, providing provision across the period period from between the end of maternity leave and when children go to school. On the surface, that's great. But the big issue is whether it will be funded properly, because the system that New Labour put in place was essentially a voucher system. It was a system where we empower parents as consumers of childcare by giving them money to spend as childcare consumers. And this will stimulate the development of a capacity within the infrastructure of childcare. If you look at the data, there was a big expansion in the late 90s and early 2000s, or the first 10 years of the new Labour administration in terms of childminders and day nurseries. A number of places did expand very considerably. But really since 2010, the value of the vouchers have gone down. Nursery providers can't provide the free hours in a way that actually allows them to cover their costs. That's the big question about whether that system that New Labour put in place is actually still fit for purpose. We have one of the most expensive childcare systems in the world. There's all sorts of factors there, apart from government funding, it's probably fueling that wages, population, demographics possibly as well, movement of people. It's interesting to what degree the government initiatives really reflect their understanding of how the dynamics 
of family life has changed. Firstly, the government initiatives are all reactionary. This should have been done eight years ago. And it's reached crisis point and they've suddenly realised they need more working mothers in the workplace to fuel the economy. But also, like you say, speaking to nursery care providers, the economics don't make sense. I want to come back to millennial mothers because I think there's a really critical generational disconnect from the previous generations. Touching on that, there was an interesting figure that said that working mothers today spend more time in the day with their kids than stay-at-home mothers did in the 1970s. And I just wondered that modern parenting, I mean, probably from the 1990s, comes with such elevated expectations and aspirations of what good parenting looks like, both from mothers and fathers. And that idea of being present and having quality time time with your kids and doing lots of activities and a commercialization and monetization of that is another story but I just feel like whether the intensification of parenting in the 21st century almost makes working motherhood even more impossible today and more difficult than it was 20 30 40 years ago Arguably, yes, although I also think there's a continuity there. I mean, if you go back to the 1950s, that was the decade in which the ideas of child psychologists like John Bowlby and Donald Winnicott and Anna Freud and various others were very powerful. And they were arguing that the absence of a continuous maternal presence in a child's life between the ages of naught and three could have devastating consequences later on in terms of that child's quote-unquote normal development, developing into a kind of well-adjusted adult. So that whole notion that mothers carry responsibility for the happiness and well-adjustedness of their children has actually been around a really long time. And of course, you know, mothers earlier on in the late 19th century, early 20th century, were under a lot of pressure to ensure their children were properly fed and properly clothed. And if they didn't do that, it was very much the mother's fault because she wasn't budgeting properly. She wasn't a respectable person. She didn't have proper standards. So actually, mothers have always been held responsible for how their children turn out. And society has often problematized motherhood or has blamed mothers for many of broader social problems. So I think that is continuity. But I also agree with what you're saying about mounting pressure. And I think perhaps particularly in the age of mass media and perhaps more recently, people are just more exposed to ideals of good parenting. And I think parenting probably has become also more competitive. One could kind of say this is a sort of product of neoliberal times. Part of investing in yourself is showing that you're brilliant mother as well as being brilliant at your job this is sort of I guess the superwoman the sort of unattainable ideal I think this notion of like demonstrative parenting through social media but even just in the playground like I always feel like massive pressure if I'm in the playground with my daughter and I'm just sitting on a bench ignoring her while she falls over and cries it's like oh my god other mothers are watching or parents are watching I better go and like be the mother and the perfect mother so I feel like it is on social media but it's always there anyway I was on a bus one time with my daughter and this old lady came up to me and she was leaving the bus and she said to me, can I just say, I really liked the way that you were talking to your child because so many mothers don't talk to their children. I found this very striking, but it did give me a little bit of a glow. I wrote a whole essay on random members of the public telling me I was a good and a bad mother. I've been told both by random members of the public. It was two weeks from my wedding. My father had just passed away. I'd spent the whole day in a wedding dress fitting and I just met my son husband. We got on the tube and I was playing with my son with a slinky and this guy just tapped me on the shoulder and I was like, yes. And he said, you're overstimulating your child. And I said, sorry, what? And he said, yeah, you're overstimulating your child. He clearly doesn't want that level of attention. I'm a child psychologist. And I just was like, who? 
are you to say that to me? You don't know what's going through my head right now. My dad just died. I'm about to get married. I'm about to go on a honeymoon and leave my child with his grandparents. You have no idea what's going on in my life. And there is that kind of like, you always have to contextualise when you see a mum give a baby an iPhone because you have no idea of the day she's just had. Slightly off topic, but I think there is an element there where, partly because of social media, but I also think there's that whole modern mantra about being present with your children, stimulating them, being so in tune with their emotional faculties. I just wonder, maybe those ideas were always there, but we're bombarded with them to a greater degree these days through mass media. Do you think the rise of digital work and maybe flexible working as well has helped or hindered working mothers? In some contexts, it can just kind of take the edge of stress away on things like picking your kids up or perhaps having a bit more control over your workload. And I think often that that's really the key, having control. I wanted to just touch on millennial demographic who make up the majority of new mothers. We were raised on gender equality narrative and that you could perhaps have it all, even though that might be a road to destruction. But certainly this idea that you should have a career, you were almost like compelled to have a career. Choosing your career was more important than choosing your husband or wife. It was so drilled into our generation, I think. One of the things I've noticed with my peer group, and certainly during and post-pandemic, is we've sort of realised that that was all a lie. And that the equality that when we had kids suddenly was revealed to be not as equal (laughs) at all. And the difficulties and just, you know, the mental burdens and overburdens of motherhood and, you know, who is most likely to catch everything when it all falls apart and all of those kinds of things. Suddenly, that gender equality narrative that was particularly fixated on our careers, suddenly I think that narrative has been slightly broken. Do you agree? Or is that perhaps something that every generation of mothers have realised once they've had kids? I mean, it's very much part of the debate around post-feminism in the 1990s. So there was this conversation, what future is there for feminism, given that women were told to aim for the stars. Women were told that they could be whoever they wanted to be. They should have everything that men have. That was what feminism was all about. Well, what if women actually find that having it all is too much? Or that in fact, they don't want to have it all. What about women who actually would prefer to specialise in staying at home and looking after their kids and identifying as full-time mothers, as most women did before the 1970s? So I think that conversation around what do you choose? Should you have it all? What is feminism for? I think has actually been around for quite a long time. But I think you're absolutely right that every new mother experiences it as a shock, (laughs) nonetheless, when it actually happens to her, when it stops becoming a kind of theoretical debate about feminism and gender equality, and actually is something that she's living every day. I do think that women who've become new mothers in the last 10 years have actually been facing a rather different world from women who were doing so earlier because so much has fallen away in terms of the welfare state and the social support. In a weird kind of way, that should create a greater solidarity amongst millennial women as a whole because there's not that capacity to just outsource it in the same way that perhaps previous generations did. The financial constraints are being felt by all socioeconomic groups apart from the top tier. Is that happening or not really? I think so. It's very striking how that growth in the employment rate of women, which has been going up and up and up and up since the Second World War, has now begun to plateau. It's disrupted by COVID, so I think it's 
quite difficult, actually. We're at a moment when it's hard to kind of say exactly what the trend is. There's an interesting trend on TikTok right now, which is being pushed by Gen Z, which is basically saying, I just want to be a stay-at-home mum. And I did some interviews, some focus groups with Gen Z girls, asking them about their mother's careers and what they thought about their mother's careers. And one of the things that came out most prominently in those conversations was the number of young women that said, I don't want to work as hard as my mother because she never saw us or I never saw her. And as a working mother, God, that hits hit hard. I think it's a really interesting conversation that younger women are having about being child free and thinking about those options around being a mother very differently, but also around work and how it fits in with their life. And that incorporates motherhood. And I think that's because that's the first generation that's grown up in dual income households with both parents working, but both parents working in a digitalised world of work. Perhaps also growing up into a labour market in which employment and working hard and being well qualified doesn't actually deliver the lifestyle benefits that other generations have enjoyed in the past and in which perhaps, you know, there is less incentive to make paid work central to your identity. And I think that's a real change from the 90s. You know, some of the think tank reports that were being published by Demos in the 90s, talking about how paid work is becoming increasingly central to people's identities, and that includes women. I think we're in a different world from that. Completely. And Gen Z are looking at millennials going, you work really hard, you made your job your identity, and what have you got to show for it? That's a really valid question. (laughs) If you look among young adults, especially if they're childless or child-free, the pay gap has essentially disappeared. So the earnings trajectory for women who do not have children, even further into their 30s and 40s, looks incredibly similar to that of men. Do you think that this crystallisation of the gender pay gap issue, now that we're realising it really only hinders those that have children, helps or hinders working mothers? As you say, it crystallises what the problem is, perhaps in a way that is quite helpful if you're trying to lobby policymakers or you're trying to make the arguments for why governments should be investing more in childcare and how if you do want to get more mothers into the labour market, you actually need to make those spending decisions. You need to prioritise those issues. It can advertise again even more powerfully to younger generations how having children is going to have a big impact on your lifestyle and your income. What do working mothers need to happen in perhaps the workplace, political sphere, and maybe also just in their own homes? In the workplace, men working part-time and working flexibly to be increasingly visible and normative. In terms of policy, I think we just need more investment in childcare. And then in terms of in the home, I think so much of this has to be a shared conversation between men and women. Fathers have to be better at stepping up and seeing this as a collective problem that you as a couple have to work through. What a fascinating discussion. You can connect with Helen McCarthy on Twitter at Historian Helen and I'll also put a link to her book Double Lies in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to It's All Relative. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Eliza Philby. And why not subscribe to my weekly newsletter to hear more from me about how we are changing as consumers, workers and as citizens. Oh, and do rate us on Apple Reviews. It helps me keep this podcast going. <laughs>